Welcome to episode 55 of Pub Crawl, a publishing podcast about reading, writing, books, and occasionally booze. I'm your host, Kelly Van Sant. I am a contracts manager and a freelance editor. And I'm your co-host, S.J. Jones, called J.J. I'm an author and erstwhile editor. We are both contributors with the Publishing Crawl blog, and together we have over 15 years of industry experience. Today we are going to start a new series, and we are going to be talking about tropes in fiction. Yeah, this is partially reader-driven and partially writer-driven in that, um, obviously there are a lot of tropes that we see in fiction that we use as writers, and we just kind of wanted to discuss the concept of tropes in general, um, using them um, and subverting them and all that kind of stuff. So I guess first let's just define what a trope is. Mm-hmm. And hmm, well, how would you define trope, Kelly? Um, I think a trope is, you know, when we're talking about it in literature, it's a literary convention um, or a stereotype or something that is used, um, you know, frequently, that is easily recognizable, that is, you know, sometimes archetypal, that's just, you know, it's just, it's a trope. (laughs) I think it's just, tropes are, if you want to sort of think about tropes, they're, they're story there's story elements, I think, that come up a lot. So you can have character tropes, you can have plot tropes, you can have relationship tropes, you can have tropes for pretty much every aspect of writing. And these are just, you know, basic, their tropes are essentially, I think, the most basic storytelling element, if we want to put it that way. Um, you know, you have you know like when when you, when we talk about character tropes we're sometimes we're talking about character types but we're also sort of talking about character journeys and sort of familiar stories for example the chosen one is definitely a character trope and it's a pretty familiar character trope to a lot of us because so many narratives employ the chosen one narrative harry potter obviously being you know one of the biggest pop culture examples but they've existed forever the story of Jesus Christ, he's a chosen one trope, if you want to kind of look at it that way, or um, it's a lot of myths, mythological heroes are often chosen ones. So this is a trope that's existed with us, has been with us for a very, very long time. So that's kind of one example of a trope. Other tropes, um, sometimes they come up from fandom usage. For example, another character trope is what we call the Mary Sue that one is very specifically actually tied to fandom, and I think that people don't necessarily understand what Mary Sue's are. <laughs> um, but we can we can get to that a little bit later. So that's kind of my general uh, overview slash definition of tropes. I think. Um, so let's let's kind of start with how to use or not how to use tropes, but how tropes get used. So we talked about kind of doing them straight and then subverting them. Mm-hmm. I'm someone who actually likes a really well done trope. Like, yeah, you know, as, as familiar and quote cliche <clears throat> as a trope can be in execution. If it's just executed really well, I, I don't care. <laughs> You know, like like the like the Beauty and the Beast story, you know that has been done a bazillion times in all sorts of different ways, and yet if it's executed well, I don't care. I will read a million of them. So I I do I tend to like well executed tropes, even if it's not necessarily quote original. Mm-hmm. Uh, what about you? Yeah, I would agree with that. And there are certain tropes too that I really that I gravitate toward. I I really love chosen one stories. I I really love Harry Potter. I love Buffy. I love, you know, all of those normal person wakes up suddenly one day and realizes that they're special and chosen and have a a larger destiny. Um you know, when those are done well, I really like those stories. 
there's a lot of romance tropes that I like too. Um, you know, that are, that are, when they're done well, I really like, um, you know, like bicker, bicker, kiss, kiss, or, you know, when people are kind of get on each other's nerves and then they end up falling in love. <laughs> I really, I really like that trope a lot. Um, so yeah, I think there's, I think that when done well, um, tropes can be really great and they're, they exist for a reason, right? They're, we gravitate towards these type of things um, and you see them again and again and again in fiction because they do somehow resonate with us on some level, that there's something in these tropes that we can attach to and identify with, and that's why they get used so often. Yeah, I think, well, humans naturally tend to like patterns that they recognize on a subconscious level that, you know, you may not necessarily articulate it, but humans do like patterns. It's sort of, you know, if you all, almost every hip hop song has the exact same four chord structure. It's, uh, and the same structure, the same order, but a lot of people don't know that a lot of people who don't know music theory or anything like that aren't necessarily aware of the four chord structure in pop music. But once you hear it, that's like all you can hear. <laughs> um, but again, human beings like it for a reason. It's familiar to them. You know, the example of a, an, an example of that pop, the pop song for chord structure uh, is Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Star has that one. But it's also the same chord structure as um, as Journey. You know, don't <laughs> yep. stop believing. It's the same four chord structure. So again, that it, you know, those are not familiar melodies by any means. They're or not similar at all melody wise, but the underpinnings of that are still the same. And I think we're like that about stories too. So even if, you know, the writing is different, the premises are different, the tropes contained within stories are familiar to us and we like that and we subconsciously recognize those patterns and find them satisfying stories, of course, when executed well. So what do you, so, okay, so let's, let's stick with the kind of playing the tropes straight thing for a bit. What would you say, or what is a well-executed trope? Like, what do you think is a well-executed trope as opposed to something that becomes cliche? Oh, that's a really good question. That's a really good question. I don't know that I have an answer for that within the trope itself, because I think that, you know, the, the trope itself is just a chosen one. You know, that's the trope. Or, you know, the five-man band, or the, you know, where you have, like, the the wizard and the strong guy and the healer and the, you know, you have one of the, each of the archetypes in a group and the group goes off, you know, to have adventures together or whatever trope it is that you're fulfilling that kind of stands on its own. And each trope has its own hallmarks and its own, um, you know, things that mark it as that trope that you kind of need to tick those boxes if, if that's the trope that you're going with. But then I think, you know, that's just a framework and, and whether or not you succeed at making that trope compelling or not is less about the trope itself and more, I think, about, you know, your writing and your story and your characters and what, you know, how you choose to fill in that framework. Um, if you only rely on the trope and you don't do any work to put in any more details beyond that. You know, if you just have a chosen one who's just a girl who wakes up one day and has powers and has a great destiny and that's it, that's not going to be very successful. But if you go deeper than that and you engage with that and you think, okay, how does she feel about suddenly you know, waking up and being chosen? You know, is she eager to embrace her destiny or is she you know, not willing to shoulder that burden. And, you know, how, how does she, how does she feel about those things? What, what's her emotional trajectory through this trope? You know, what is she, who was she before this thing happened to her? How has this changed her? You know, you need to fill in all of that, I think, for a trope to be successful. 
because otherwise, I think I think tropes that aren't that that seem um, Mary Sueish or stereotypical are just kind of they check off all the boxes that's required to establish that trope, and then they don't do any more work. They try to let the trope stand on its own as a story or as a character. And a trope isn't a character. A trope isn't a story. You have to do the work to to make it something more than that. Yeah, I would I would say that what differentiates a cliche from a well-executed trope is complexity. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> because... When something reads cliche or tropey, it's it just looks like scaffolding, you know? It just basically is very flimsy and you you can it doesn't it doesn't the characters or the story doesn't feel earned or real or any of that sort of thing and the tropes are the first thing you see, not the character. Because in my opinion, all of my favorite not all, but a, a large number of my favorite books and stories do adhere to a lot of tropes very faithfully and execute them very faithfully, but it is only in hindsight that I'm sort of able to apply those tropes to to the narrative in, in many cases. Star Wars being a kind of a really great example of <laughs> of of a tropey, like a lot of kind of uh, well-worn tropes executed well versus the prequel trilogy which is a whole bunch of tropes executed poorly and so bad cliche um and i and i think a lot of it in star wars anyway it's uh, a lot of it has to do with characterization that you know the characters are strong enough to overcome the tropes that they are because you know the farm boy leaving his home with a wise old mentor you know, to have adventures and discover his powers is is a very old story. And yet it doesn't feel that way, even even though we recognize the narrative underpinnings of Luke's journey, it still doesn't feel like you're being bashed over the head with that kind of classic story. Mm-hmm. On the flip side, you have the story of Anakin, who is kind of reverse chosen one I guess you can say you know he's the prophesied one and he kind of comes and fulfills the or just goes astray mm-hmm. I guess I mean the whole we never did do the <laughs> the dissecting the prequel because neither Kelly and I are really up to watching the prequels at the moment even no. though even though we did talk about it and we maybe we should do it in the future about why it isn't successful but like um, it's just, they're so stilted and the characters are so stilted and wooden. And in, in, in the case of the prequel trilogy, you know, you know, the ending before the beginning and it's not like the original star Wars trilogy where you also know the ending before the beginning, you know, that good is going to triumph over evil, but there's there's still obstacles and you still care and you still feel the stakes. Like each of the characters actually have something to lose. That isn't the overall good versus evil story. They personally have things at stake to lose and therefore you care about, about them. Um, so I, I do think that what differentiates cliche is is the depth and complexity of of the execution. Now, of course, this is subjective because some people do find Star Wars incredibly cliche. And it is cliche. It's not like it it's necessarily a bad thing, I think, because even though it is cliche, I still think it's enjoyable and I would say fairly good in entertaining movies. The same thing with Lord of the Rings. The the Lord of the Rings trilogy is also, you know, very tropey in that kind of like old school Again, kind of a, a knife is torn from his bucolic existence to go out and save the world outside his like small rural home. You know, that's that's a story that it just exists in our in our narrative and it's fulfilled. It's not subverted in any way in Tolkien's story. And yet I don't care. I'll still read Lord of the Rings and enjoy it and not see the scaffolding around around the story. So I think I don't know. Do we have anything else to say about what we think is cliche? Like, what what do you define as cliche? What do I define <clears throat> as cliche? I mean, it's it's 
like, you know, like the hooker with the heart of gold or the, you know, like just those, I can't even think of any other ones. I don't know why that one popped into my head at the moment, but like just the, yeah. But even when she's done well, I don't care. And I kind of like that character. So, right. No. Yeah. Like it's, it's not, it's not that, um, it's not that the things in and of themselves, you know, are necessarily bad if executed well, but I think cliches are just things that have just been done over and over and over. And when not examined and when not complex, um, it's like, it's supposed to be shorthand for emotion. It's like, we've, we've associated this cliche with a particular emotion or a particular thing. It signifies to the audience if you're watching something or to the reader, if you're reading something, it's like a, it's a signifier for you that when you come across this cliche, you know, you know, you have a, a particular association with it, or you have a, a, a Pavlonian response, um, that comes up. And, and I think a lot of times what happens is that these cliches get employed as like shorthand when people don't want to, or are incapable of doing the work to generate a genuine emotional response. And so instead they stick these cliches in there that act as the shorthand that we can then interpret and digest and know, you know, okay, we're supposed to feel, you know, okay, this, this is where the narrative is going. Right. It's like, this is tiny Tim on his crutches and like, okay, we all know like, mm-hmm. yeah, we've seen means. it before elsewhere, probably executed better. So they're trying to reach for that, but they're not doing the work to do it. Right. Properly. I, w- I would agree with that. I think that something that is cliche is shorthand. And it's also when something is cliche, it's flat. And by flat, what I mean is that most narratives and characters contain multitudes of tropes. Like mm-hmm. one character, one complex character can contain several different tropes. And it's not contradictory. You know, that all contributes to a portrait of a well-rounded character. Whereas I think if something is cliche, that character is reduced to a single trope and never gets to grow beyond that or be anything more than that shorthand. So, Mm -hmm. and it is an example of lazy writing if they never have any dimensions beyond that single trope. So I think that's probably how I would define cliche. Mm Mm-hmm. So then let's talk about subverting tropes, which, I mean, I do like a, a, a trope that's been subverted, but it's, in my opinion, actually a lot harder to do this well than to execute a trope straight well. Yeah. Yeah. It is hard to subvert them. The one that is on my mind, of course, I've been rewatching this show recently. So this is why I've referenced it a couple times already, but the opening scene of, Buffy the Vampire Slayer, the TV show, the first scene in the entire thing is a girl and a boy, a blonde girl and a guy that are supposed to be in high school, but of course they're like 30. Um, Back in the 90s, that's the way we used to cast teenagers. (laughs) It's true. It's true. But we're, you know, they're supposed to be high school kids, like breaking into the school after dark. And it's like kind of flirty and kind of sexy and kind of like, ooh, we're doing something bad. And the girl is really nervous and the guy is really cocksure. And the trope that we're setting up here is that you've got like the bad boy and the good girl and the girl is going to be in trouble. She's, you know, something bad is going to happen to the girl because that's kind of the horror movie trope that we're, you know, playing in here. And then they subvert that by... um you know, once they break into the school and the girl is really nervous and she's like, are you sure there's no one around? And the guy's like, no, we're totally alone. And the girl says, good. And then she turns into a vampire and she kills the boy. And we've, we've been set up to expect that the girl is in danger when in fact she's the one who is dangerous.
feel like this happens a lot with gender swaps. Like simply swapping the gender is not enough to subvert the tropes. You need to figure out why those tropes are tied to those genders to begin with and, and how when you switch the gender, how that changes those relationships. Yeah, I mean, it, it can be done well, it, but it's you, you can't start from the trope subversion, I think. The, for example, I think a wonderful trope subversion is actually Katniss and Peeta from The Hunger Games. Mm-hmm. Because Katniss does take on a lot of stereotypically male characteristics. She's the hunter, the protector. She's much more aggressive. She's um, kind of emotionally, emotionally reticent. Yeah, yeah, she's very, very kind of reticent and closed off. And then on the other hand, you have Peeta. Peeta, who has a lot of kind of stereotypically feminine traits. He's very nurturing. He's very kind-hearted. He's artistic and sensitive. He bakes, you know, and it's, it's a very kind of, it's, those two are very much as trope, trope subversion, but I don't think Suzanne Collins necessarily set out to be like, well, I'm going to do this and therefore I'm going to create these characters to, I don't think she did it that way. I think it because it fits the narrative and it fits the story. That's why that trope subversion works. And also, what makes it so powerful is because you expect in these sorts of narratives to have the guy be the big protector, the one who's going to rescue the damsel in distress, and that's kind of what we expect. But it's you know the girl who's doing the rescuing of the guy and you know that is that has power in the way the narrative is constructed so but i agree that a lot of people who are like i'm gonna gender flip this and i'm always curious and kind of (laughs) then sometimes i'm a little bit like the the gender swap twilight the the anniversary yeah which i did read um, I, and that's a little bit different because that's not necessarily her going out to subvert tropes or anything, but you know, what, what that story is told from a gender swapped point of view is it changed the narrative, but she didn't do enough to do anything with it, you know? So I, I do, I do think like if you're going to subvert a trope, Um, I do believe that you should do them somewhat intentionally. I don't think that you should just kind of do these sorts of things willy-nilly. But if you're going to, then really understand what makes the original trope powerful enough that it appeals to people. Because really what uh, a subverted trope is almost a bait-and-switch. Because you're setting up an expectation, you know, you, your your readers are expecting certain things based on what they read. And when the subversion comes in, that's when there's a twist or a turn and they get surprised by it. And and like the, like the opening of Buffy that Kelly had given us an example to, you know, we're expecting certain things and therefore we expect the narrative is going to go a certain way. And then boom, last minute, it changes. So that's the way to subvert a trope. You know, starting from a place of subversion is kind of, difficult and weird and it doesn't always work um there's actually a book by china mieville called unlondon um that i actually really love i I do love this book kind of a lot and it's all about the unchosen one so it's about two girls named zanna and deed and um the main character is her friend is the chosen one she's the one who's been talked about in all these prophecies, who's going to save Unlondon from, you know, the, the big bad. In the first battle, she gets taken out. So then it's up to Deba to kind of basically pick up the slack and then become the unchosen one. And it, in its own way, it kind of works and it doesn't. I mean, I still love this book a lot. If you guys liked, um, if you, if you like Alice in Wonderland and if you like the Phantom Tollbooth, I think you'll really enjoy Unlondon. But in, in the, in the process of subverting the chosen one trope, he plays the chosen one trope straight. (laughs) Yeah. Um, but it kind of sort of makes sense in the context of Unlondon, this world that he created that's kind of like the complete opposite of what every of London above, like the London that exists mm-hmm. 
in our world. So in that respect, it kind of makes sense. You know, obviously the chosen one of Unlondon can't be the one who's in the prophecy just because it wouldn't work in the framework of Unlondon. So it's a really, I mean, if you don't like, obviously just read it because it's enjoyable and funny and whimsical. Um, But, you know, if you want to kind of think about what China Mieville is doing with storytelling tropes, that's Mm -hmm. also a really good one to pick up and read. Well, this is why I think, too, that um, fairy tale retellings are so popular because fairy tales are essentially, again, tropes. They're bare bones. They're the characters. They're not characters. You know, Little Red Riding Hood is not a character. She has no defining characteristics. We know nothing about her, who she is as a person, you know, what she likes or dislikes. We just know that she's a girl who is walking to bring her grandmother some stuff and she gets distracted and she gets eaten by a wolf. Like that's, there's no, you know, there's, there's, there's a framework there, but there's no characters. Um, and so that is why I think that people find fairy tale retellings so popular. That's why we're seeing so, so many of them and why people feel compelled to write them or are inspired, um, by some element of fairy tales is because that, that framework is there for you, but there's so much to fill in, in an, a fairy tale framework. You can take it and do so much with it. And, and that's why too, that fairy tale retellings can be so different from book to book to book, because it's essentially a blank slate and you just fill in, you know, that character with whatever characteristics you want to see. And so, yeah, what the author wants to explore more, I think, mm-hmm. I think fairy tale retellings say much more about the author than they do about the fairy tale. Yeah. You, you can interpret fairy tales in multiple ways. You know, what does the wolf represent? What does the red, the red riding hood itself represent? Like all those sorts of questions and the writer will imbue those tropes or those images with their own interpretation. Um, it's I find it I find fairy tale retellings interesting because I feel like anyone who does tackle fairy tale retellings and I am somebody who loves them. Like if you if someone if you mention fairy tale retelling anywhere, I'm like I'm sold. <laughs> Gonna pick it up. I don't you know, and obviously you know, it's interesting too because when I look at a fairy when I read a fairy tale retelling and if, if I feel that the author did not get at the heart of the fairy tale that I saw, then I feel like it's a mismatch or it isn't successful. And I find that really interesting because there are some, like the Lunar Chronicles, for example, which are each in each retellings of fairy tales, but they're all also their own story. And in in that case, it really wasn't, the Marissa Meyer didn't necessarily, in my opinion, get what I call the heart of the fairy tale. She sort of used the kind of trappings around the fairy tale and kind of sprinkled them throughout her story. So mm-hmm. the first book in Cinder, you know, the, the big things that we all know from Cinderella, the fairy tale, is that she's, you know, horribly abused by her stepmother and stepsisters. She has a fairy godmother and she goes to a ball and then loses her shoe. Those are kind of like the big things that we kind of remember about Cinderella. And really, you can kind if you sort of squint, you can sort of find the fairy godmother. Um, and she doesn't really lose a shoe at the ball. She loses her she cyborg. She loses her foot. <laughs> her cyborg foot. Um, but these are kind of like familiar elements. But that's not what the story hangs around. Whereas on the other hand, there's a, a fairy tale retelling by Robin McKinley called Beauty which I really love, and that is pretty much a straight-ahead retelling of Beauty and the Beast. And if I, I felt like it got it. What I thought is the heart of the story of, a Beauty, of Beauty and the Beast is it's kind of almost the ultimate slow-burn romance because, you know, she's falling in love with him because of who he is and not because of what he looks like because he's a monster. Um and that's like really kind of at the heart of what I think a Beauty and the Beast narrative should be or is. Um, and sometimes I've read Beauty and the Beast retellings where I was like, this is not what I consider a Beauty and the Beast retelling. Like, like the Beast has to be beastly in some way. Like, they have to either be physically beastly or, like, 
personality-wise beastly, I guess. Um, and sometimes it just doesn't seem to gel for me. So, but yeah, I, I feel like if if <laughs> if an author's interpretation of a fairy tale doesn't line up with mine, then I'm just like, oh, <laughs> it's, not, it's not what I was looking for. <laughs> Um, so yeah, I think there's, so we talked about fairy tale retellings. Um, I don't know if we, we, have we sort of finished everything we wanted to say about subverting tropes? Because I don't know how much else we can really say about that. Yeah, I think so. I mean, we're going to do a series to follow on like specific types of tropes, right? Where we're going to break down some specific ones more in detail. Yeah, and yeah, specific tropes in detail, um... Also doing them straight, doing them not straight. Mm -hmm. Also just period lists, like, what ones we like and ones we don't like. Yeah. (laughs) And situations, I think, where the trope we like has worked and situations where the trope we like has not worked. Because I can think of a couple of those where I'm like, oh, I like this trope. And then I read it and I'm like, no, I didn't like how it was executed, though. Um, So, yeah, I I think that's all we have to say on the kind of general overview So, yeah, then let's move on to our next segments. All right. What have you been working on? (laughs) Nothing. (laughs) Still not not back to writing yet. Um, Life has been crazy. I'm still kind of in my post-election funk. And then um, my daughter is actually having surgery tomorrow morning. So um, we've been preparing for that. She's going to have a pretty routine eye surgery. So that and prep for that has kind of taken up all my free time. So I haven't written anything. I assume you're still working on book two? Yep. <laughs> mm-hmm. Still working on it. Nothing nothing new on that front. Yeah. So what have you been reading then? I also haven't read anything new. Um, well, that's not true. You sent me some old fan fiction and I've been reading that. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't and it great? Been- delightful it is great um that's been really fun but other than that no I haven't read anything I actually that's one of the things I have to do tonight is I have to go to the library and try to download some books um for tomorrow when my daughter is in surgery and I'm going to be in the waiting room (laughs) so I need something to distract me um but no I haven't read anything since we recorded a couple days ago um I so I met up with Roshni Chakshi um, for, you know, we we have drinks pretty often, but she gave me two books to read. One was a picture book called A Hungry Lion or a Dwindling Assortment of Animals by Lucy Ruth Cummins. It is hilarious um, and and kind of dark, dark humor. Um, she just, she's like, I think you would enjoy it. And she was right. And it was funny because I kind of was flipping through it and Mark had called me coming home from work and he says, I'm going to pick up some Thai food. You want to do some like Thai food and watch TV? And I said, sure. But he came home and the first thing I did when he came home was I read this picture book to him because I was like, you have to read this. This is so funny and cute and dark. Um, which is, and he laughed and it was like totally our upper alley. So there's that. She also gave me The Secret Horses of Briar Hill by Megan Shepard, which is a middle grade. Um, I only just started it, but it has that kind of magical middle grade voice, which I really love. And so that's pretty good. I also have a couple books from the library that I am reading. Earlier this year, I think it was this year. I think it was this year. Earlier this year, I tried to read The Dark Days Club by Alison mm-hmm. Goodman. And I just I, I started that too, but I didn't finish. I just yeah, I, I think I just wasn't in the right mood to yeah. read it the first time around and I it I had to return it before finishing it, so I'm gonna try that one again. Uh and I like Alison Goodman. I really I do too. I like her stuff, so I it, I don't think it's a necessarily a mismatch of like her writing and me. I think it's just like I wasn't in the right mood to read it the first time. So those are the three that I'm kind of working my way through. I did find out who that YA author of Erotica was, but I will not say. (laughs) Um, But I have read other Erotica novels by said author now, Sierra Simone. She's quite good. She's 
she's pretty good. Uh, I she's so. Um, I almost want to out her simply because like then you guys should go like read her YA novels as well. But um, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna do that. <laughs> um, yeah, that's that's it. That's what I've been reading. So anything else? Any off menu recommendations? Um. The only thing that I have done in the past couple days is finally break open my Christmas movie hoard. Mm, yes. We watch, you know, the same sort of Christmas movies every year. Um, and we started with Home Alone this year, which I just really love Home Alone. I love, I love Home Alone. And I think it really has held up as being like kind of a great movie still. <laughs> and I don't, I don't know if it's just that, um, you know, because this movie came out when I was a kid and I don't remember the exact year it came out, you know, but I was, I was, I was I'm older than, Ke- uh, what's his face? Not Kevin McAllister. Um, Macaulay, Macaulay Culkin. Culkin. I was like, I'm, I'm older than him, but not by much. Um, so it came out when I was a kid and I remember watching it as a kid and I think then it was early it, 90s. It was like 92, yeah. maybe? Yeah. And then, you know, watched it, you know, through my childhood and then, you know, my adolescence. And now as an adult, I watch it every year. And there's something like so, like, irreverent about it. Like some of the stuff in the opening scene when they're all in the house and they're running around and they're just like insulting one another in this way that is hilarious, but also that, like, feels legitimately familial. Like, these feel like real horrific things that family members would say to one another. Uh, yeah. <laughs> in a way that's just really, I don't know, it, it's just, it just made, we laughed so hard um, when we were watching it the other night. So, I started watching Home Alone. If you haven't seen that for whatever reason, you should solve that immediately. Um... And then other than that, any new off-menu recommendations? Did we talk about the Hamilton mixtape last time? No, we didn't. I think we did. I don't think we did. That's crazy. Um, Yeah, the Hamilton mixtape, all day, every day. It is phenomenal. Um, You know, Lin-Manuel Miranda had released tracks um, here and there throughout probably the last month or so and now finally the whole thing is out there if you have not got it yet you really should if you don't think it's going to be your type of thing you should ignore that impulse and get it anyway and listen to it it's it's really really excellent um so so impressive it's just i love it i love it so much (laughs) it's also i think for you and me callie lynn lynn is 35 so mm-hmm. he's in our age cohort so like a yeah. lot of the hip-hop and r&b artists that he loved when he was younger were hip-hop and r&b artists that we listened to when we were younger yeah um so for us and i think for lynn too it's partially like a nostalgia trip because when the uh-huh. full track listing when he had released the track listing before he, the actual mixtape came out, Kelly and I were just like G chatting each other about who was on it. And like, it was incredible. Who was doing it? And we're just like, oh my god! Like our like our minds just like blew. It was great. Uh huh. Yeah. The day he released the track list, I was like, the dream of the '90s is alive in the <laughs> Hamilton mixtape. <laughs> So um, good. So good. So good. There are, I mean, there are certain numbers that I like less than others. Um, I think the ones that I, my favorite tracks are probably the Roots version of My Shot is mm-hmm. honestly is amazing. is amazing. I think it's probably one of the best. Um, if we talk about kind of straight up covers i really like sia's satisfied a lot yeah Mm -hmm. i think that's great um i think congratulations by dessa also great i Uh, love it i understand why it was cut from the musical but it's it's so good Um, it's so good and i love dessa and what else was oh cabinet battle number three again another one that Mm -hmm. i understand why it was cut but that just like oh that one punched me in the gut. 
Um, you know what the biggest shocker for me was, um, is that the Chance the Rapper, Dear Theodosia. I cried. I sobbed in that song. I mean, I cry on that song anyway, and I got teary during the Regina Spector Ben Folds song, because of course Regina Spector and Ben Folds covered that, because that's I know, the perfect right? song for them to cover, <laughs> and it's a great cover, and it's wonderful. And the Chance the Rapper one is very different. It's, it's very, um, it's, it's really, it's I, it, very unexpected. It was nothing like I expected. It's the last track on the album, and I just wept openly <laughs> listening I, I did to too. it. The first time I listened to his version of the Dear Theory Doge, I cried. I, I did not expect that at all, for one. And it's also just like, his voice kind of has like a slight cracked quality to it that's kind of just his voice, but also kind of like the emotion of it. Um, it just like, it just kind of like socked me in the face. Um, here is an, a, here is an unpopular opinion. I don't like Kelly Clarkson's It's Quiet Uptown. It's not my favorite either. And I love Kelly Clarkson unironically. Oh, I do too. Um, it's just, they made it into a big power ballad and I wish that it, it's, I wish it was more intimate. I think it's a more intimate song. And so I wish it had had a different arrangement and a different treatment. Yeah, they overstuffed the production, I think. And it just, it just, it's such a quiet song. It is just a really quiet song, very intimate. And I love the original arrangement, which is very simple. Uh, very simple piano. Um, not, not any percussions or anything like that. And there's, you know, it's vocal and it's very, very beautiful and just kind of stripped down in a way that I thought was very, very moving. But the Kelly Clarkson version is just, its it feels overproduced. It also, like, puts a lot of oomph and power behind the song that I don't think it needs. Um, if it, if there is a power ballad at all in, in this, it would probably, the closest is Satisfied. And it, I just don't, I don't know, like, I like Kelly Clarkson a lot, and I, I do. I love a lot of her stuff, and I'm just like, this, I don't like it all, though. Hmm. Also, Jimmy Fallon's You'll Be Back is the worst. I skip it every time. I'm really upset. Um, I have not listened to it all the way through. <laughs> oh, it's so bad, Kelly. It's so bad. I only listened to it once, and I only got like a minute in, and I was like, no, I can't. Um, when I first saw it on the track list, it said Jimmy Fallon and the Roots, and I thought they were going to do it um, the, the way he does on his show sometimes, where they do the, the Roots are playing like toy instruments. <laughs> and it's just acapella, and it's them playing, you know, the toys. Um, so not acapella, but you know what I mean. Um, that's what I expected with, like, the little toy kazoos and pianos and, you know, rinky-dink little things. And and that, I was kind of like, okay, that makes sense for the song. Like, it'll be funny. Like, But instead, it's it has, like, an actual arrangement. And he has that horrible intro where he's just being, like, it's like a weird, bizarre audition tape, and then it goes into him singing it. like the quality is terrible. I'm pretty I'm just sure not Jimmy into Fallon it. has a range of an octave because he can't hit any of those high notes. He goes so flat. It's just like, oh, it's so bad. Every And every time it comes up, I, I've considered deleting it off my phone. That's what my friend Chris said, and he was like, "I can't bring myself to do it. I feel like it's the like the penance I have to do to be worthy of the rest of the album. <laughs> like, in order to be worthy of the rest of the album, I have to keep the Jimmy Fallon track on my phone. Uh, it's just not uh, good. I just skip it every time. I do too. I never. I only listen to it that once, and then I just skip it every time because it's just not worth it." Um, but yes, Hamilton mixtape, if you guys have not listened to it, then I highly recommend it because it's just, it's so good. And it's not a straight cover of the songs on the show because that would be, well, why would you bother? Because the original soundtrack exists and it's so great. So why would you need to cover it like that? Yeah. There's three styles. There's, there's the ones that are straight covers of some of the songs. There are demos, um, of Lin-Manuel doing demos of songs that were eventually cut from the show. And then there are 
be inspired by tracks like My Shot or like Immigrants um, that are inspired by either a song or a moment in the show. And then the artists go on to put like their own, they write a song inspired by something in the show rather than just covering mm-hmm. um, one of the songs in the show. Yeah. So it's really excellent. If you haven't got it yet, get on that, fix that immediately. It's so good. Um, yeah, so we talked about, oh, I I didn't mention this last week. Mark and I watched the newest season of Black Mirror, which is, which was released on Netflix, and I believe it's six episodes. Um, really enjoyed it. I really, trying to get Kelly to, to <laughs> watch Black Mirror forever. Um, and I, and I even gave her a list of episodes to watch because I know you don't like scary things or anything like that. And so it's like, so you can mm-hmm. watch these. These aren't scary. Um, but there is one particular episode of Black Mirror that I just tell everybody to watch because it is, I, it just, it's so happy making in a way that made me cry. Like just bawl my eyes out. And this is San Junipero. And uh, I love it. I love it so much. And it's got this wonderful 80s soundtrack to it. Um, the thing about Black Mirror episodes, especially the ones on Netflix, is a lot of them are quite long because they're not constrained to like a 22 or 44 minute kind of format. And I believe mm-hmm. San Junipero it was pretty long. It was almost movie length. Um, and definitely the last one, the last episode of of black mirrors, I think like 90 minutes long. So it's pretty practically a movie in itself. Um, but the season is pretty good. Um, the very first episode was co-written with Rashida Jones and I really liked it. And then I felt like it fell apart at the, at the end, but, uh, all the other ones are, are solo written by Charlie Brooker. Um, so I really love them and I highly recommend them. So there's that. There is Black Mirror. Have I been consuming any other media? Probably not. Playing a lot of Pokemon Go. I caught three Ditto and a Pikachu yesterday. That was having a great Pokemon day. <laughs> um, yeah, but I think nothing else on my end. So, yeah. See, we did have a question from last time that I don't think we answered. And this is from This was this was from um somebody who had actually asked about getting their book into bookstores. And I I'm not going to give the name or the specifics cuz I think it's a little bit personal, but the process of getting your book, self-published book, I would say, into physical bookstores like Barnes & Noble or an Indie or Amazon is really, really hard if you're self-published. The reason traditional publishers exist, basically, is to get your books into bookstores. Because everything else you can sort of do on your own, you can find a cover designer, you can find an editor, you can find somebody who can do the, the formatting and the the design of the interior, but actually getting your book into bookstores requires you to have a relationship with those accounts, with the people who buy for those stores. And as far as I know, big places like Amazon, Barnes & Noble don't have like a person that kind of talks to anyone outside of a publishing house. I don't I don't think that they have them, so unless you have those contacts, it is extremely hard to get your book into a chain. I mean, even traditionally published authors sometimes don't get their books into bookstores because the buyer didn't like something about it. They didn't like the title or the cover or the premise or whatever it was. Sometimes Or their publisher is going through a spat with Barnes & Noble or Amazon. And sometimes the books just don't get stocked. And that's kind of the process about the the physical part of publishing. Because the thing about a digital marketplace, anyone can do that. Anyone can. If you 
have the wherewithal to create a digital file and to format it and, you know, hire a good designer and a good cover person, I think anyone, that's kind of the great part about the digital marketplace. It's very, very democratic in that way. Anyone can do it. But a physical copy of a book, that's actually a specialized business. That's, you know, that, that's an, it's kind of like, you just kind of, it's not like anyone can do it, unfortunately. You know, that is kind of the last barrier when it comes to self-publishing. So I don't know if you have anything else to say about sales. No, I think you, I think you covered it. Like that. Uh, as we, as we've mentioned before, we do, you know, definitely send us questions if that you want answered um, using the hashtag AskPubCrawl. We did get one from Adriana on Twitter, but it was very much just, how do I get awesome like you guys? That was my only question, so. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I don't... Anyone can be awesome. Anyone can be awesome. Anyone can start a podcast. That's the great thing about a podcast. Anyone can do that. You just (laughs) get a mic and (laughs) start recording. Yeah. (laughs) Literally. (laughs) (laughs) It requires no special talents. I know this to be true because I'm doing it. All right. So I do believe that's it for this week. That is all for this week. Next week, we're going to continue to talk about tropes by talking about tropes that we like, which is highly subjective, but uh, but should be interesting as we talk about our favorites. As always, if you want more, please subscribe via iTunes, Stitcher, Podcast Pickle, or your podcast provider of choice. Also, if you like us, please rate and review when you get a chance as it helps other listeners find the podcast. If you want more pub crawl goodness, you can go to our website, publishingcrawl.com, where we have many more posts and articles about various aspects of reading, writing, and the publishing industry. You can also follow us on Twitter at pubcrawlblog, as well as on Tumblr, Facebook, and Instagram at publishingcrawl. You can follow me, Kelly, at bookishchick on Twitter or Instagram, or my website at penandparsley.com. And you can follow me, JJ, at sjjones, that's S-J-A-E-J-O-N-E-S, on Twitter or my website, sjjones.com. Our theme music is Quirky Dog by Kevin McLeod, and our logo is designed by Aaron Bowman, author of Vengeance Road, available now wherever books are sold. If you have any further questions, comments, or feedback, feel free to email us at publishingcrawl at gmail.com or send us an ask through Tumblr. Thank you so much for listening. Bye. Bye. Our theme music is Quirky Dog by Kevin McLeod, and our logo is designed and created by Aaron Bowman. No. Yes. Damn it. <laughs> <laughs>